0: started here. Um, Welcome to the fourth and last first round session of the Student Speaker Challenge. I'm just going to first request that everyone turns off their cell phones so there's no interruptions. Thanks. The 2011 Student Speaker Challenge is presented in partnership by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, by the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group, the University of Lethbridge, and by the University of Lethbridge Students Union. My name is Vanessa Lodemeyer and I'm a fifth year student here at the U of L. I have a general major in the social sciences, in anthropology, sociology, and political science. And I will be your moderator for today's session. Our presenters today will be addressing the question, what is global justice and how can it be achieved? Both presenters will have 15 minutes to present their respective responses to the question. An additional 15 minutes will be allotted to each presenter following their presentation to answer questions from our panel of judges as well as from our audience. Following the conclusion of both presentations and question periods, our judges will hand in their scorecards, at which point the winner of today's session will be announced. That winner will receive $100, courtesy of SACPA and move on to the semi-final round of the 2011 Student Speaker Challenge, which will begin after the reading break. At every Student Speaker Challenge session, the panel of judges consists of one student, one faculty member, and one community member. The student to judge today is James Falconer, he is a recent graduate of the UofL and he participated in last year's student speaker challenge and is currently working as a research assistant in the sociology department. Our faculty judge today is Dr. Robert Runty from the Faculty of Education and he specializes in educational sociology. Our community judge is Wendy Kalkin, uh, who is a former alum, of, or is an alum of the University of Lethbridge, uh, and she graduated in urban and regional studies. She has worked throughout Alberta as a multicultural commissioner with the government of Alberta, as well as a coordinator of human and community development projects in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, we are expecting a very riveting contest today between uh, Rory Tarant and Alex Massey. Rory Terrant served two terms as the president of the Grand Prairie Regional College Students Association and previously worked for a Conservative Member of Parliament for Peace River. Recently, Rory ran for Lethbridge City Council Alderman. Alex Mathay is a former ULSU Vice President Academic and former News Editor at The Mailerist. He currently sits as a member of Elkberg's Board of Directors and is currently finishing his undergraduate thesis. It is time to begin. By virtue of a coin toss, it has been decided that Alex will speak first. Please welcome Alex.
1: If I speak from this distance, can everybody hear me clearly? All right. Now, I'd like to begin with a bit of a clerical note for the judges, and that is that you have received a, a summary of my thesis, and although that summary will provide some of the framework for what I'm going to be talking about, I've changed the details substantially uh, to make it a little bit uh, less academic so that it could fit more appropriately into a 15-minute time frame. So. With that said, I'll get started. It's the 5th century BCE, and Socrates and some young companions are on the way home from the Piraeus. They get pulled aside by Paul Marcus. There's a shaker down by the dock tonight, says Paul Marcus. Free drinks at my place. Now, I don't know if you've ever invited a philosopher to an all-night party, but be warned, the conversation's about to get deep. And so it is that within a matter of minutes, Socrates and company are debating the nature of justice. Now, a couple definitions get tossed around, but none of them really fits the bill. And so Glaucon, the older brother of Plato, steps up to the plate. Grant me this, says Glaucon. There are some things, like joy, for example, that are good in and of themselves. Well, indeed, says Socrates. And it seems that there are other things, knowledge or health, that we desire for themselves and for their consequences. So it would seem, says Socrates. Well, grant me this then, Socrates, there seems to be one other type of good. Things that we seek out, not for themselves, but only for their consequences. Things like medical treatment, gymnastic exercise. Well, I believe you're right. Now, in which of these categories would you place justice? asks Glaucon. Well, it seems to me that it would be placed in the most beautiful category, that which is beloved for itself and for its consequences. Well, it doesn't seem that way to most people, says Glaucon. It seems to most people that to commit injustice is best and to suffer it worst. But, and this is a key point here, The benefit of the commission of the injustice to the perpetrator is greater than, uh, sorry, (laughs) the suffering uh, caused by the injustice is greater than the benefit to the perpetrator. Now, I use just one example to illustrate this, but there are countless others. Say I steal your wallet. Now, I might get 30 bucks, but, you know, you're not just out 30 bucks. You gotta run around town you got to uh, replace all the cards that were in there, replace the wallet and everything else. And that's going to cost you a whole lot more than what I gained uh, from stealing it in the first place. Now, am I better off because of, a, because of that injustice? Well, yeah. I got 30 bucks. But it doesn't take long to realize the net effect of committing that injustice was negative and that humanity would, on average, be far better off if people didn't steal each other's wallets. Now, until now, I've been really paraphrasing Plato's Republic, but at this point, I'd like to take a moment to quote the character of Glaucon. When people both do injustice and suffer from each other, and get a taste of both, it seems profitable, he says, to make contract with each other, neither to do injustice nor to suffer it. And from then on, they begin to set up laws and agreements among themselves, and to name what's commanded by the laws, both lawful and just. And this is is the origin and being of justice. So, let me reiterate. It is in every person's immediate self-interest to shaft every other. After all, who doesn't want 30 bucks? But because the victim's suffering is greater than the perpetrator's gain, people, on average, are worse off. Justice, to Glaucon, is an agreement by each to forego his or her own immediate self-interest for the benefit of all. When we abide by that agreement, everyone, including the wallet thief, is better off. Now, I have to admit, I'm with Socrates on this one. I think that justice is to be desired on its own merits, as well as for its eventual political ramifications. If I were to steal your 30 bucks, the guilt and shame that I would feel would far away the benefit that I would gain from the beer that I would spend your thirty bucks on next door at the zoo. But, when I do the right thing, I feel good about it. I think, or at least I hope, that's true of all of you as well. So what we call behaving justly is something to be desired on its own merits, as well as for its consequences. But, Glaucon's definition is perhaps more instructive. To illustrate why it's instructive, I'm going to drop the case of the wallet theft for now, and uh, adopt a more nuanced example. I consider myself a pretty ethical person. I'm not perfect, but neither are any of you and neither is anyone else. Now, I also recognize that global warming is a serious global justice issue and that my own greenhouse gas emissions are part of the problem. But I drove my car to school today by myself. Now, you could say that I knowingly committed an injustice by doing so. Just a moment ago I explained that I wouldn't commit the injustice of stealing your wallet because I would feel guilty as a result. But notice that in that case, if I don't steal your wallet, it's all good. The case of greenhouse gas emissions is, as I said, much more nuanced. If I decide not to drive to school, I'll be removing a very small drop from a very large bucket of carbon emissions. Now, of course, it's true that if all people who are conscious of the problem of global warming uh, decided to reduce their emissions, the impact would be huge. But we run into a classic collective action problem. And that is... uh, (coughs) Pardon me. I can't trust jerks like you to do the right thing, and you certainly can't trust jerks like me to do my part. Why? Because in each case, it is in each person's immediate self-interest to do what is unjust. So, we have this huge group of people who all agree that we'd be better off if we make some sacrifices to cut our emissions. But, we can't get there from here, at least not if we rely solely on the goodwill of individuals. (coughs) This is where the the Glauconian definition of justice comes into play. What we need to do, is make contract with each other, neither to commit the injustice of creating excessive carbon emissions, nor to suffer it. To wit, the carbon tax. Preferably one that's revenue neutral and has is offset by income tax breaks to lower income brackets, but that's a bit of an aside. Now, it seems to me that I've gone on long enough here, though, without explicitly addressing the topic at hand. Namely, what is global justice? Which is our first question today. Global justice is what you get when all the people of the world agree, whether implicitly or explicitly, neither to commit nor to suffer injustice, when all the people of the world forgo their immediate self-interest for the betterment of all. But remember, this is not about convincing people to make sacrifices for the benefit of others. This is is about convincing people to sacrifice their immediate self-interest because, among other people, it is also in their medium to long-term self-interest to do so. Now, in the isolated case I gave, uh, it might be in my interest to steal your wallet, but I know full well that in a world where people can steal each other's wallets with impunity, uh, it's going to be a shit life for me too. So, in the fullness of time, I'm going to be many times a victim, and as we discussed, the suffering of the victim outweighs the gains of the perpetrator. Similarly, I know that today it was in my interest to drive to school instead of busing, it. but I also know that rising sea levels, crop failures, the shutting down of the Gulf Stream, among other examples, is going to hit me pretty hard, and if you want to find out a little bit more of that, uh, look into some of the writings of Gwynne Dyer, who did an excellent lecture here a couple of years ago on the subject. And it's going to hit me hard enough to outweigh that short-term gain and convenience. That brings me to the second question. How can it be achieved? I'll be frank with you, anybody who thinks that global justice can be achieved is kidding themselves. It's foolish to think that someday everything's just going to be fixed and we can all take a vacation. Justice is not a linear process with a well-defined endpoint. It is a constant struggle to meet new challenges. Nevertheless, it is our duty to keep on struggling. I propose that we use Glaucon's instrumental conception of justice as a tool for improving the social contract. In that way, we can solve collective action problems and, furthermore, we can harness people's rational self-interest in order to make the world a better place but there are a few preconditions that must be met in order for this form of justice to work. One precondition is the existence of some manner of enforcement mechanism to backstop our social contracts. This doesn't have to be, as Thomas Hobbes suggested in his famous book, Leviathan, uh, an autocratic sovereign with a big stick who will beat you up for breaking the rules. In fact, it doesn't have to be repressive at all, but... Uh, Certainly, it will not work if there is not a system of incentives and disincentives to back up our agreements. Otherwise, we have no reasonable expectation that those agreements will indeed be followed. Now, uh, if you want an example of that, you can look at the number of lofty goals set out in various UN resolutions that are now consigned to the dustbin of international history. Another precondition for uh, economic justice is the one alluded to by my fellow speaker, Robbie Rolfe, in an excellent talk a couple of weeks ago. In order for the social contract to be truly effective, we need the rule of law. And why is that? Well, because without the rule of law, people who are in positions of of power can commit injustice with impunity, and they have no reason to obey the social contract. Uh, Now, I would like to propose one final precondition for this conception of justice to work. And that is that you need some semblance of material equality. And uh, my thesis has been that justice can be achieved by getting everybody to set aside their immediate self-interest for the medium-to-long-term term self interests of all. But, if foregoing your immediate self-interest means starving to death, then you're not too concerned about the long-term. And so, to put it in more concrete terms, I may recognize that the world would be a better place if people didn't steal each other's wallets. But if I need the contents of your wallet to stave off imminent debt, I'm gonna take it. Now I'd like to add a proviso here. I would argue that the enforcement of the social contract is one of the fundamental reasons for the existence of the sovereign state. But the upshot of that is that in order to have a global social contract, we would need to have a global state. Now, this is a very scary prospect that I, for one, will not endorse. Uh, I think that uh, many of you would agree that allowing one organization to establish global sovereignty, in other words, allowing one organization an absolute monopoly on the legitimate use of coercive force, is a really bad idea. It would only take a short period of global dictatorship for everyone to share that same conclusion. Now, before I get to the end of things here, uh, I'd like to make a bit of a note, and that is that we're not here to talk about local justice. I think there's something to be said for the expression, think globally, act locally. But, I also think that the definition of justice that I've advanced here uh, does have global applications and one way that you might look at that is uh, if, for example, we here in what is uh, frequently called the West were to take a serious look at our economic relationship with the rest of the world, uh, we would realize that uh, while we perhaps have not felt the consequences yet of our uh, the uh, environmental destruction, or economic exploitation that we've caused in other parts of the world, uh, we will, those consequences will come back to bite us. And, uh, as an example of that, you need to look at the part of the third world that is only called the developing world as a euphemism. Certainly there is a developing world, but much has been left behind and we need to worry about the problems of pervasive poverty, overpopulation, environmental destruction, etc. And so, in fact, it is in our medium to long-term self-interests to place limitations on the ways that our our corporations, for example, operate in other parts of the world, because it is going to come back to bite us in the medium to long-term if we don't. So this does have global applications. At this point, I would like to take a moment to speak about my motives here, because my thesis might sound pretty high-minded, pretty academic, and perhaps it is, but uh, the reason that I've advanced it is because I believe this to be a truly pragmatic approach to justice. Now, I'm going to lay my cards on the table here. I tend to be on the political left, and you may have guessed that already. I'm not always on the left, but often I am. There's a pervasive tendency among my fellow lefties, though, to pursue global justice simply by trying to convince people to do the right thing because, well, that's what they really ought to do. That's fine and good, but it's not particularly effective. Like I said, I'm with Socrates. I think that justice should be beloved for its own sake and for its consequences. And I think that that's an important point. But with that said, the fact of the matter is that Glaucon's definition is much more useful in the shaping of public policy. So I'll keep trying to do the right thing for its own sake. But when it comes to tackling injustice on a large scale, we have no reasonable choice but to use the social contract to incentivize justice and disincentivize injustice. Thank you. You question
2: Yeah, yeah, okay. So you'll stay up here though.
0: Um, thank you, Alex. Uh, we will now have 15 minutes for questions. And I'll pre- please request that the audience withholds their questions until all the judges have had a chance to ask theirs first. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thanks very much, Alex. Um, there seems to be some evidence that the human brain is hardwired for uh, short-term incentives and short-term rewards. Um, is, is there any way that your conception of justice uh,
2: is
1: connected justice to the human nature? That's a very good question. Yeah, no, I I think that that's a very damning point because I do think that it is in many ways antithetical to the ways that we are hardwired to behave. Um, And I do think that that can be overcome through things like education, uh, but certainly that is the biggest hurdle that my thesis faces.
2: Discussion and trying to put up a practical problem. My concern is that uh, with globalization and the exportation of poverty and the working class to uh, a long way from here, trying to convince average average American to give up their SUV uh, in order to make things better for somebody somewhere else, which is a very abstract, distant, invisible uh, problem in the long term, Uh, Yeah, I believe in climate and, you know, we're going to see wars with people over there come over and start trying to into our buildings. But in the short term, connecting the dots between my SUV and poverty in the third world, um, it's it's a very abstract, difficult argument. Um, How do you see translating that kind of uh, philosophical argument saying you should do these things um, and and still make it a practical, selfish kind of response on the part of it?
1: I think that's an excellent question. Um, I think that, quite frankly, it is going to require some sign of the negative consequences for us, for the people who need to make these sacrifices uh, before we take action. Uh, At this point, people in this part of the world haven't really seen those negative consequences yet. And the sad reality is I think that we are going to need to see some crises and to have those crises concretely uh, connected to as it were the dots in the third world uh, in order for us to truly take action
2: I'm if you'd like to on the, or the notion of free will in regards to the difference
1: uh, to be frank, I'm not very familiar with Aristotle. Uh, I will say on the concept of free will that I am very much a free will skeptic. I don't believe in it, but of course we all have no choice but to act as though we do. Uh, frankly, I haven't read enough Aristotle to answer that question in an informed way. I uh-huh. No, I mean, I think that the, if you are going to seize on the particular examples of global warming and of economic exploitation in various other parts of the world, which I've used to try and advance my thesis, I think that those are being committed on such an immense scale that uh, by the time that we have 9 billion people in the world, and the vast majority of them are living in such squalor that they have uh, no option but to uh, try to struggle with violence, if necessary, to get what it takes to survive, then I don't think that any amount of imperialism or wall building or machine gun turret building will really... Make the difference. Uh, I
2: like there's agree. There's a movement to uh, give a whole bunch of money to the world so they don't hold where we are so we can keep doing what we're doing. Do you see any uh, value in that? Sorry, could you rephrase the question? Well, uh, let's talk about the, the majority of the, the first world. Giving a lot of credits of dollars to the third world so they don't go where we are in terms of of energy consumption and stuff like that? Do you
1: see any value in that? I think that's a stopgap measure. I think that what will happen if such an approach is taken is that we'll end up with well funded leading classes in other countries of the world. and they'll end up like Hosni Mubarak. They will try to use that money, A, to enrich themselves, and B, to repress their populations. But it's uh, the same answer as I gave to Thomas. It simply won't work. It's a stopgap measure, uh, but because injustice is being created on such a massive scale, uh, that will not really defend against uh, the problems, uh, or against, sorry, the repercussions of the problems that are being created in much of the world currently. By root causes, do you mean, for example, the political circumstances that lead our rulers not to take action on those types of issues? I think that it would be insane not to simultaneously attempt to address both. I think that we do need to find some way, and I don't really have the answer to this, despite the fact that I am studying it in my honors thesis right now. I don't really have the answer to how it is that we should better engage, particularly the youth of modern democracies, to tackle the root causes behind government inaction on major large-scale problems. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's something that we need to put a lot of our efforts into because it is going to be absolutely crippling, and not just in terms of global warming, but in terms of the future legitimacy and stability of our democratic systems. Alex,
2: there's a, a local example that is brewing on the flood, uh, First Nations Blood Reserve with uh, fracking and where we drive our SUVs, the oil and gas companies in the United States got an exemption of being water out, uh for oil and gas. So they could track all over the place. Uh, New York State tried to block it in, in December. They passed legislation to stop tracking. the governor just recently, as he the non tracking legislation put forward by uh, elected representatives of New York State, because some 12 million people might get a little thirsty if it was bad water. Uh, we've got bad water about to happen right here in Samaria's Reservoir and the Old Man River. Is that close enough to happen? Do we have to wait until it's polluted? We can't break the stuff? Or could we take action before it is?
1: Well, if there are enough people like you who are aware of this issue ahead of time and willing to take action, then certainly we can make a change on that basis with that groundswell of support. Um, But I would say that this is actually a perfect example of where we need to take action from the ground up to get our rulers to enforce improvements to the social contract because it will be detrimental to the immediate self-interest Uh, not only of the corporations doing the actual uh, natural gas exploration, but also to many members of the blood reserve. And uh, I think that what we need to do is make it very clear uh, to far more people exactly how harmful the medium to long-term consequences of that type of development will be. And to use that as a basis for improving the social contract.
2: We have time for two more questions. Charlie, I like I'm wondering though, I've heard a lot about global work, I'm wondering where your pieces stand on human rights violations and some sort of extension. Incentive development
1: program that might now, I'm certainly no expert on foreign aid, but I think that if we were to get serious about tackling human rights violations, I think that we could use carrots and sticks put out by the uh, state departments or departments of foreign affairs and international trade. Uh, various wealthy countries to provide incentives to uh, improving human rights records and disincentives to committing human rights abuses. Um, to get into the details would be a little bit disingenuous because foreign aid is a very, very complicated subject. Uh, but certainly I think that there's a lot of potential there. We have
2: one
3: more
2: question. <laughs> Classic supplemental. Uh, are the students going to be here long enough to be interested in water coming life, to the above research towards left fridge or everybody going to graduate and go off somewhere else in the world to get employment? How are we able to get the students involved in even a local issue that might affect them for a few months or a few years?
1: Well, I don't know about the student body in general, but I've looked around at people who, like me, have been involved in the students' union, and they all work in this building, so really they're probably going to be around for some time. Um, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think that, that that you're proposing a unique case because the University of Lethbridge in particular is somewhere where there is disproportionate amount of uh, mobility and where quite a bit of the resident population is going to be Um, is going to be leaving here. But I don't think that we should be attempting to seek environmental regulation uh, simply for the blood reserve. I think that it should be a much more general thing. And so I think that we should be lobbying our provincial and federal governments on their respective areas of jurisdiction to provide the regulation that will be necessary to protect everybody, not simply Southern Albertans. And hopefully within that, will be the necessary measures to protect people from water pollution in this area in particular.
2: All right,
0: let's <laughs> All right, we'll now have a quick five minute break. Um, so you can grab a few refreshments and we'll be back with our second speaker. All right, so Rory will now have 15 minutes to address the question, what is global justice and how can it be achieved?
4: Thank you. (laughs) Greetings fellow students, professors, members of the community, and our honored judges. I take great pleasure in standing before you today to address the topic of global justice, as it is a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. I will begin my speech by sharing with you how I believe the term global justice should be defined and interpreted. Using these definitions and interpretations as a platform, I will then proceed by laying out several proposals for how global justice can be achieved. So what is global justice? Global justice is often defined through the notion of equality of condition. The basis for this notion is that every human being should be entitled to enjoy the same quality of life under the same conditions across the globe. Proponents of this view would have the state and international actors work together to create a system whereby assistance is given by the rich nations to the developing world in order order to give the world's poorest a taste of the modern lifestyles we enjoy in the developed world. Notice my emphasis on a taste. Indeed, This view of global justice has dominated international development thinking for much of the post-World War II era. While the proponents of this ideology are typically very compassionate and inexplicably sensitive to the plight of the world's poorest, I believe this ideology and the actions that flow from it have in, in fact been counterproductive. After over 60 years of having states and NGOs provide direct financial support, technical assistance, food programs, and Medicare to address many of the world's injustices, very little progress has been made. I do not need to inundate you with the countless statistics relating to the numerous injustices that still occur today. From rampant starvation, to curable diseases, to the oppression of women, to human suffering, the world is very much as broken of a place today as it was decades ago. I believe a new mindset needs to take hold to reverse this trend. I propose that the world needs to more widely interpret global justice in terms of equality of opportunity. Instead of trying to guarantee that the same conditions are present in every nation, we need to allow the world's poorest countries to grow in the same way that developed countries have. I believe this can only be achieved if all nations and their citizens have the same opportunities that modern developed countries have. Studies have shown time and time again that when nations obtain these same opportunities, indicators such as economic wealth, social justice, and democratization have converged toward toward the global mean. This is aptly known as the convergence theory. Thus, it is within this concept that I believe global justice should be viewed. Now, moving away from theoretical platitudes, I will now, now launch into the how of the topic. The quality of opportunity and the convergence theory sound great in concept, But they will remain just that, concepts, unless it is explained how these can be achieved and what benefits they will have. Two of the greatest factors in achieving equality of opportunity are political and economic freedoms. While each of these components has been crucial in the development of the modern world, I I will contend today that it is by having economic freedoms that nations have the greatest propensity to combat global injustices. So what is economic freedom? Economists James Bortney and Robert Lawson explain that individuals have economic freedom when property they acquire without the use of force, fraud, or theft is protected from physical, or protected from physical invasion by, invasions by others, and they are free to use, exchange, or give their property as long as their actions do not violate the, the identical rights of others. Thus, when people are confident that the the fruits of their labors cannot be taken away arbitrarily or by force, people everywhere have have greater assurance that their labors will lead lead to better lives for themselves and their families. This enhances the entrepreneurial spirit which causes people to take risks, which in turn creates a wealth generation cycle. Conversely, a government that does not enforce contracts takes property from its citizens without due compensation puts limits on voluntary transactions, violates the tenets of economic freedom. In so doing, such a government provides a disincentive for entrepreneurship and and productivity as individuals become skeptical about realizing the gains of their productive efforts. I would like to highlight this concept by contrasting a friend's experience in a country with high economic freedom with what he would have experienced in a nation with low economic freedom. My friend Paul decided to start working for a residential siding business a few years ago. He was not forced to take a certain type of schooling and then obtain employment in his assigned field. He was free to choose. After a couple of years of working, he had saved a significant amount of money thanks to fairly low income taxes and a banking system that allowed him to invest where he wanted and in the way he thought best. He then took this money and started his own siding business. Other than an inexpensive business permit, which is fairly easy to obtain, he did not have to go through a time-intensive, bureaucratic slog in order to perhaps have the chance of owning his own business. Recently, Paul used the profits of his company to build a house, which he then sold for a greater return on the investment. I tell you this story to highlight how Paul has entered into a wealth generation cycle due to the economic freedom that was afforded to him. By the way, he, he did this all before he turned 23 years old. I'll now contrast Paul's story with that of Muhammad Bouazizi. Mohamed was a 26-year-old man living in Tunisia. Now, Tunisia, for those who aren't aware, was run by a repressive dictatorship that afforded very few economic freedoms to its citizens. This came to the world's attention in December of last year, when Muhammad was charged with operating a fruit stand without a license. In reality, he had tried to obtain the proper license, and after months of bureaucratic wrangling, he just set up shop regardless. And after being charged, Mohammed lit himself on fire, and in doing so, he became a catalyst for the movement that would eventually oust the president. While this is one isolated incident, it is symptomatic of the problems associated with the state undermining the economic freedoms of its population. Due to the subversion of a number of economic freedoms, mostly due to corruption, Tunisia's economy is in disarray, with youth unemployment sitting at a staggering 31%. Economic reform is essential for a reversal of this trend. Up to this point, I've highlighted how microeconomic policies shape the degree to which economic freedom is found within a nation, and how these freedoms contribute to the wealth generation cycle. I'll now explain what economic freedom means at the macroeconomic level. The key to macroeconomic freedom is free trade. Now, to many people, the terms free trade or trade liberalization instantly bring up images of Nike sweatshops in Malaysia. Many see it as another way in which the developed world exploits the developing world. I would like to, you to think beyond these images as I, I explain the full range of benefits the entire world derives from free of trade. However, before we examine the benefits of freer trade, we will begin by describing the pitfalls of free trade's FOIL, protectionism. Many nations believe that by protecting their domestic markets through price controls, market guarantees, and supply management, they are ensuring that their citizens have access to high quality jobs as well as to products at affordable prices. While these may be short-term benefits, in the long run, protectionist measures stifle productivity, cause domestic prices to rise, prohibit other nations from accessing world markets freely, thus hindering their economic growth. This is most often observed in agricultural markets, where developed countries give their producers large subsidies and protection from international markets. For example, it is illegal for sugar buyers in the United States to purchase their their sugar from sources outside the country, even though the world price of sugar is much cheaper. This is great for U.S. sugar beet growers, as it means they have a guaranteed supply of buyers at a price that is being kept artificially high by federal laws. If the United States were to abandon such self-centered policies, sugar growers everywhere would have access to their markets, thus contributing to economic growth elsewhere and lowering the price of sugar for everyone. Another component of trade policy is what is known as fair trade. While it may ease our consciences in the developed world, knowing that we are giving coffee producers in Bolivia a premium for their product, this practice is detrimental to the long-term health of these nations. It is detrimental because fair trade creates a false economy. It does this by giving farmers incentives to continue producing agricultural products, albeit for a slightly higher profit margin. However, this creates a disincentive for people and governments to diversify their economies, a key component in economic growth. The same can be said of aid programs that provide cows and chickens to help people start small farming operations. While there are honest and good intentions behind these programs, they, in effect, stifle entrepreneurial spirit by having foreigners dictate what these countries' economies should look like. These types of programs act in the same capacity as protectionist trade measures do, by subverting the economic freedom of the world's population. I've just given you the theoretical basis, as well as anecdotal evidence, for how economic freedoms support economic growth. I will now provide some empirical evidence which will highlight the strong positive correlation between the two. It is now well documented that a nation's degree of economic freedom is the single most important determinant in their rate of growth. In fact, the countries with the highest degree of economic freedom have an average annual growth rate, uh, growth rate of per capita real GDP of 2.4%, while those with the lowest degrees of economic freedom have an average of negative 1.3%. Thus, the degree to which a country exhibits economic freedom is, uh, remains, the best endi- sorry, remains the best predictor of a nation's per capita rate of growth. Now... The key mind will notice that up to this point, it has been assumed that a positive growth rate actually leads to injustices, such as poverty being reduced. However, we must prove the validity of this argument. For if no correlation exists between the two, what I've said to this point is mute. Fortunately for me, the correlation has been well established, and it is to this correlation I will now turn. To reiterate, the greatest factor in the reduction of world poverty is the economic growth of nations. Theoretically, the linkage is self-evident. As individuals and nations increase their relative wealth, uh, per per capita income increases, which in turn allows basic life necessities such as food, clean water, and basic health care to be purchased, and thus the poverty cycle begins to break down. In practice, this linkage proves to be true across the globe and across time. But let's not just take my word for it. Let's look at the evidence. Two countries that have exhibited this trend are Peru and Chile. Both these countries extensively restructured their economies in the 1990s to provide for greater economic freedoms, such as those I've I've mentioned previously. This in turn produced considerably high rates of economic growth. As a result, the past decade has seen poverty rates drop dramatically. er, in In 1990, Peru had 19% of its population, working population earning less than a dollar a day. By 2004, that number had dropped to 7%. Chile's reforms have caused their dollar per day poverty rate to drop to 2%. In addition to income growth, other poverty measures such as the infant mortality rate and life expectancy have improved immeasurably. So where does this leave us? Let's recap. If global justice is to be viewed through the lens of equality of opportunity, then economic freedoms are essential. Economic freedoms lead to economic growth, which in turn leads to higher incomes and the reduction of extreme poverty. Now, before you hammer me with your objections, I'd like to throw a few caveats out there. I'm not so deluded to think that through the provision of economic freedoms alone, the world's problems will magically disappear. As I mentioned at the beginning, political freedoms are also crucial factors in achieving equality quality of opportunity. In addition, there are a number of traps that nations can be stuck in that neutralize any effects political and economic freedoms have on a given populace. Paul Collier, in his book, The Bottom Billion, concisely identifies a number of these traps, such as being landlocked with bad neighbors or being over-reliant on natural resource revenues, particularly oil. Until countries can break out of these traps, economic and political freedoms will only marginally pull them out of, out of the poverty cycles. Finally, my, my last caveat is that I am not propagating a completely unrestrained, lazy-fair type of global capitalism. There will always be a need for governments to ensure that everyone is playing by the same rules, and that the marketplace is indeed free and open to all those who wish to participate. With these caveats in place, I would like to conclude by providing a summary of the arguments I have made today. First, it is evident that current perceptions of global justice have brought us no further in our quest to eliminate the injustices of the world. Thus, a new mindset based on equality of opportunity should be adopted. Second, global justice, as seen through this mindset, will be realized chiefly through the expansion of economic freedoms across the world. These include microeconomic freedoms, such as the ability to start your own business. But it also includes macroeconomic freedoms, such as trade liberalization and the ending of fair trade practices. Together, these freedoms will reduce many of the world's injustices. Thus, it is our duty as global citizens to facilitate the changes necessary to bring these freedoms to every human being. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, Rory. We'll now have another fifteen minutes for questions, and I'll just again ask that the audience uh keeps their questions until after the judges have a chance to ask theirs. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Rory. Um, I appreciate
2: that uh, the the current uh, of the pass model by uh for a testing fly maybe not culturally sensitive the West telling the third world life path or what we But um, it it seems to me that there's been an ongoing experiment uh, exactly along the lines of what you described since the 70s with with the open trade liberalization uh, that mobilized free trade. And that's only served to increase the income disparity in uh, the countries where it's been applied. So um, it seems to me that a cause and effect relationship has been demonstrated along the lines
4: of well, you know, that, that would, uh, there's you know, a number of studies and reports that have shown that, that it's a very disputed thing. Um, when you talk about you know, this sort of since the 1970s, you know, trade liberal, liberal, liberalization has been a you know, major component of foreign policy. Um, unfortunately, that, that's only one aspect of economic freedoms. You look at uh, Tunisia, as I used in my, uh, my example here. They have. They, they're one of the examples of an African country using uh, trade liberalisation. They've opened the markets. They've um, they've let uh, you know some foreign investment in. They're they've opened that way. However, they uh, have not extended those same types of economic freedoms to the populace. Uh, it is very difficult to obtain business licences there. It's uh, there's, there's a number of economic freedoms that aren't afforded to the to the people. Particularly corruption is, is one of the, the largest factors um, hindering, their, um, hindering them and giving economic uh, freedom to the people. Um, and, and so it's, it's not, you know, that trade liberalization is just one component. And it's very attractive for these corrupt regimes to, to uh, you know, just have these in because a lot of times they own... Um, they own the biggest corporations, and you know their brothers and their family. They own all the corporations, and so when they're, you know, these different measures that they're taking are actually benefiting them, and they're not actually benefiting the people. Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. things are but let's, let's start with that. I have the evidence. I think they're the key to the or central party. Uh, you talk about countries who are out of these traps. And you recognize a few, but I think the most fundamental trap kind of is the structure of international markets, um, where it really doesn't matter what you doing with your internal economy if uh, you're treating them as a high-level uh, planning you know. field. And I think it's fairly well established in the literature that colonial uh, structures, um, maybe not politically, but certainly economically, are still there. And that uh, it's very difficult for these countries to get out of that. Uh, and that what we've ended up doing by saying the problem is uh, economic reform is a kind of leaning that if only they did have these corrupt governments, if uh, only they, they could you know, straighten out their internal uh, economy, everything would be fine. Well, in fact, I'm arguing that the causation is, is backwards here. Because they're forced into the uh, global uh, structure of markets, um, that these corrupt governments sort of negatively uh on the piece the national response to the structure that you find and that uh, so, um really you haven't done I don't know how you uh I, I can't I can't do a common <laughs> you
4: know I mean? okay, So I mean you said a number of things there yeah. uh, so so I think the main thing you're talking about is the causation uh in terms of you're saying that the international, uh, you know, global capitalist system that we have set up right now is actually causing the poverty, and it's not the other way around. See, I I would have to disagree. Um, There's, you know, a number of cases, and I think the link has been uh, quite evident now that when there are, uh, when when growth has been propagated within these uh, developing nations, it's... and, and you know, all the, the full range of freedoms are afforded to every citizen, not just to those at the uh, elite levels. They do, they can develop in the same way. Um, you know, the, this whole idea about the convergence uh, theory, how um, these went, once there's a level playing field um, for all these nations, they can develop in the same way that we have, right? And my argument is that you know, a lot of the practices we've had. Um, you know, have been detrimental, and, and though even though we have um, you know, had good intentions, you know, in providing the, the foreign aid, those type of things. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I would disagree that that it is causing. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I believe that um, sorry, that the uh, economic freedom is, an actually, a way to give people the ability to work their way out of the poverty cycles.
2: And my question is, uh, you would like to talk about how your attitude is that the liberalization of economic freedoms are uh, going to save us in terms of uh, global justice. There is a movement to put out there to start measuring the prosperity of countries in terms of uh, their social indicators and their social problems. Would you care to comment about how liberalization of economic freedoms is going to assist or affect itself to the uh, development of,
4: of social indicators uh, for a country's prosperity? Right. Uh, so <coughs> as a country pulls itself out of these poverty cycles, as uh, people are empowered to start businesses, to create these economies that have allowed developed countries to develop in the way they have. Um, that is one of the <coughs> sorry, one of the key um, drivers in, in ending corruption and ending um, you know, a lot of these social injustices that, that take place. When people are empowered to you know, go ahead and start you know, a fruit stand instead of being relegate, relegated to creating a black market in, in human trafficking, um, because they just the government's just not allowing them to the freedom to do that uh, you know, and there's a number of uh, correlations that take place that will allow um, that once once people are you know living on more than a dollar a day and able to take care of themselves that they're not a lot of these social ills can be addressed okay. I have a um, mm-hmm. um you work
2: at the you're Um, I'm from Lair and I'm kind of wondering, um, just just domestically, how's how could how you so much health system work here in Alberta? And what I, I mean by that is I like see closure of several um,
4: If you could rephrase that, I'm mean, a little... Uh, My question uh, is, is um, even, even locally, I'm talking about the other companies
2: around how several businesses who, because of business ingenuity and building from these supermarkets, that are now pol- like polarizing regions whereby you know, for, uh, local businesses are forced to take into account and teach these long-right businesses over in other areas, over in other areas. From, even in
4: our own system from uh, embracing system. Um sorry I'm, I'm still a little <coughs> foggy on that. So in terms of sort of product increasing productivity are you talking about? I'm
2: asking if I you Mm-hmm. Um, so we increased uh, business, uh, encouraging business ingenuity, correct? Right, right. Okay, well, what I'm getting at is that I've seen business ingenuity create um, superstores. And these superstores have the ability to polarize a city, to polarize an area. And what I'm talking about is that specifically up in the Peace region, um, my whole town has seen loss of businesses due to this polarization. And I'm wondering, how you can explain to me?
4: Right, well, in in terms of, uh, you know, business ingenuity and and giving... So when when individuals are empowered to create... to take risks, to take economic risks. They have that ability. You know, if it's grocery stores, if someone has the ability to start, you know, a small, you know, local market, even a farmer's market, and they expand from there, and they can, you know, easily obtain permits, and they have uh, the different, uh, you know, different um, freedoms necessary to uh, propagate themselves and to make themselves uh, more economically successful, then, you know, that to me is, is... the, you know, where the heart of, you know, of capitalism lies, and keeping, allowing people to have that freedom. Now, you know, there are, you know, obviously some, you know, negative effects. Sometimes there's, you know, monopolies, and that's where one of the ways where, you know, the government can step in. And there is a need for, you know, business regulation to ensure that, you know, there is a play, you know, even playing field. So I'm sorry if I didn't quite answer your question, but...
2: Um, so, you, you asked us to ask if they're going a shop example. Mm-hmm. I'm not prepared quite it quite it. So, okay. um, say you're, you're working in a shop for Nike in Malaysia or um, wherever, in some of the world, and you want to start a free center. But you need, and I know I'm not an economist, but mm-hmm. you need have to start a food center. But if these businesses have the freedom, work with you fifteen hours a day and pay you only enough to so that you can and come back to work the next day. How are you supposed to start um, even if you know if you can get the permit from the government, um, these non governmental, these corporations are coming in and you can't get past that and you know they're making you work under conditions where you know, you're not even helping mm-hmm. them to start and because you know the you know the there's no regulations
4: and you're just barely getting by hours a day at the 12 year olds or whatever, right? Yeah. First of all, it, in a number of those cases, the vast majority of those cases, uh, the different sweatshops or the different factories that are built overseas, the wages are substantially better than what the local populace receives. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's quite well documented that, you know, while they, it is, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite small compared to what we receive here, um, they do get paid, um, It's on average it's double the, the average income of, of their fellow uh, workers. So there is, you know, there is the ability to, to, um, to acquire capital. And there is that ability to, to pool. You know, we have that, uh, you know, ability here. We can, several people can get together to uh, put money together to create a business. So the, there is that, those uh, opportunities. Now, a lot of times, you know, we don't realize that without those different foreign companies coming in, these countries, these countries are, you know, impoverished. And, uh, you know, bring, by bringing this capital in, that's, uh, you know, that's, it, it's a form of, um, you know, it, it is pr- bringing capital into the country. Also, another thing it does is it provides t- technical assistance. A lot of people, you know, going, working at these f- factories learn different mechanic uh, parts, learn different uh, structures, learning, uh, you know, how to economize, how to uh make things more efficient and that you know those are skills that can be uh, brought into other other parts. Yeah, say
3: that you can't just these things
2: with I mean, you're people to make it your day, um, some food,
4: and Well well see people are going to you know People are driven by economics, so wherever they can uh, derive the maximum benefit, no one's forcing them to work in these sweatshops, right? I mean, there are you know, obviously some countries where that's the case, and you know that's where political freedoms uh, come into play. But uh, no one's forcing them to, and so people are, when they're empowered to work, to choose where, wherever they want uh, to maximize um, their economies. That's where they're going to choose, and if it's in the, the you know, the workshop, which often it is, often it's much better wages than working in an agricultural um, setting, then they're going to choose that and that's going to be, you know, the way for them to acquire capital.
2: All right, I just have a little bit Oh, you Okay. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I just want to say that I have a bit of an issue with the premise that you talked about before you said at the beginning uh, six years, you've been of 60 years, even going on this state-centric economic uh, model, which is untrue. Since the 1980s, what you're describing as neoliberalism be has been embraced by most of the first world democracies, uh, except for a few. And uh, the other democracies, let's just say the United States, for instance, that it has been embraced by its uh, created levels of wild involvement that we haven't seen before uh, previous to the 1950 era when we did have a mixed in the United States, which solved the class middle class. Uh, the United States now has among the lowest health outcomes, social educators, and education outcomes uh, amongst the Western world. And then we look at countries that immigrate this model, in like Sweden, Norway, Denmark. Countries like that, they have the highest uh, uh, levels of quality, the highest levels of education, the best health outcomes. Uh, so I guess my first question would be what's wrong with students. My second question, my second on the international level, you, you you would imagine this in the world, this language and economic freedoms for individuals. But, like I said, since the 1980s, this has been an effect. And what I think we've seen is not economic freedoms for voting for the rights of individuals, but voting for the rights of the corporations and empowering corporations. Often we see this advance, that sort of repression. So I wonder if you could respond to that, how it would be empowered, since the 1980s, Walmart, Exxon Mobil, all the all the rights of people, and Western wrong
4: First of all, uh, yeah, I'll address the, uh, you know, in terms of the past, you know, 60 years or whatever. I'm talking in in terms of our approach to international development. Often, uh, you know, especially in Canada, the international development uh, agencies, CETA in Canada, and the foreign, you know, foreign affairs departments and our uh, international trade departments aren't working in sync with each other. And so often we have these um, very distinct uh, policies being put out, so we have uh, you know, economic uh, trade liberalisation policies. Whereas, you know, in international uh, development, it's, it's still focused on, on the old sort of model, the old model and uh, providing equality of conditioning. let's just you know give sort of that you know taste of, of uh, you know, our lifestyles to people. And that I, I was advocating that that's not um, not beneficial. Um, and so that's what I was referring to in, in terms of. of uh, and now, in, in terms of you know the economic freedom, uh, like I said before, it's you cannot have macroeconomic um, economic freedoms and micro. Uh, when you look at the countries that, like I said, Tunisia that have embraced these trade liberalisation, you know, with open arms, and they've kind of been um, heralded as a you know as a model for the world, and they've had. Um, you know the president, the uh, the United States has been propping the, the president that was recently dethroned, um, and you know those that doesn't trickle down. There's not does um, not afford the you know the the economic freedoms um, to the people. So. What uh, you know, I'm, I'm saying. So there's there's things we can do in terms of you know, trade liberalization, but a lot of the economic freedoms, it, it you know, it comes down to the the domestic governments of these kind of, of these uh, impoverished countries, and it you know takes a lot of will and determination. Like I've uh, mentioned in, in Chile and Peru that have uh, you know experienced these. Uh, I have some other examples: Hong Kong, Singapore uh, were very. Uh, had loss of government regulation, it was very, and, and they were very impoverished. Um, Hong Kong, going back to the, you know, before the 1960s, and uh, as they really, you know, opened up their economies, opened up trade, afforded more uh, microeconomic freedoms to their, to their populations, there was um, they experienced massive growth, and now they're ranked among the uh, first world democracies in terms of social justice issues and in terms of uh, economic w- growth. Thank
2: you.
4: Sweet. <laughs> um, they actually, thought, you sorry. That we actually don't have
2: any more have thank for
0: Alright, we'll now give the judges five minutes to uh, finalize their scores and I'm just going to provide a few announcements of upcoming events. Um, on Thursday, February 10th, uh, which is tomorrow, from noon to one30 at Country Kitchen Caterers, there's going to be a talk called Dialogue on Democracy, Should Voting Be Compulsory? And Heather McIntosh, Dan Shapiro and Dr. Gordon Campbell will be speaking. Um, Another one, another talk also occurring at the Country Kitchen Catering on Thursday, February 17th from noon to 1.30 is um, called Hydraulic Fracking. What is it and is it a blessing or disaster? And the speaker will be Mike Bruce Ted. Um, And just a reminder about our next uh, student speaker challenge. The first semi-final session will be occurring on Tuesday, March 1st, at 4:30 p.m. in this ballroom, and it will be featuring Thomas Fox and Taylor Webb. Thank you. All right. If we can have everyone reconvene, I will announce the winner of this session. All right, the winner for today's 2011 Student Speaker Challenge is Rory. Congratulations, Rory. All right, we'll now have our judges just provide a few brief comments
2: and that um, the main problem you're up against is the complexity of the argument that you're trying to make in such a brief time. So that what happened was I felt that connecting the dots for the audience, um, the conclusion kind of came abruptly, and that in some ways it would have been better if you'd started where you ended up, but sort of started with the conclusion and you know, took that as granted, and then more clearly connected it to the global issue that was a promise So it remained a bit abstract. Um, also being abstract and philosophical, it was, it was difficult to kind of present some of the passion there. Um, not to say philosophic, uh, philosophy can't be passionate, but um, uh, and and. The, the flip side of that, one of the advantages of it was I had to pay very close attention, I had to be very engaged with what they were saying to follow each step of the argument, so in some ways that, that led to a lot of engagement. Um, for uh, Rory, I thought um, you had a lot of clarity in your argument, a very clear thesis statement, you went through the arguments and you got to the conclusion and you connected all those dots perfectly. Uh, what I, what um, the sacrificed to doing that was some of the audience engagement uh, particularly the introduction of say I'm going to do this this and this that's kind of a standard generic opening um, I, I kind of liked having a hook that would draw me into the discussion and keep me there uh, rather than kind of a, an outline or an agenda and the same with the conclusion you know there's uh, I, I like the clarity of the conclusion and then the caveats that was very well done uh, but maybe some um again, to get the passion up, but to get that interest for the audience, something a bit more concrete and engaging, so uh, But both really great. And i got to go. Sorry.
3: Uh, thank you. Comment for uh, both of you. Um, I really don't think uh, either of you was penalized for uh, taking a theoretical or pragmatic approach. I think both are perfectly appropriate, and I actually don't think uh, theory and pragmatism should be so far removed. Uh, I'm really engaged by both. And so uh, both were very uh, refreshing to hear. Um, For Alex, um, a good intro, I liked your story about uh, Socrates and Glaucon. Um, You directly addressed the questions. You said, I don't know when appropriate or uh, or ask for clarification. Uh, But your responses, I think, uh, could have emanated more from your thesis. Uh, You responded well uh, from from other background information, but if you could situate your responses uh, within the context of your thesis, it really would have um, supported your talk uh, during the question period. Uh, For Rory, uh, good evidence when appropriate, you know, use of statistics but not overuse, um, a discussion of uh, correlation um, is good, and uh, and I thought you were always clear and, and oriented toward the topic. Thank you.
2: And my comments, without repeating what everybody else has said here, um, Alex, I really enjoyed your start, uh, the, starting with the historical uh, dialogue on the whole concept of uh, democracy and how that all segued, and you segued that through very nicely through a whole stream of thought, a whole stream of consciousness all the way through to our present day uh, situation that we can all relate to with uh, regards to uh, environmental issues. And I think you left uh, a lot of good food for thought. Uh, Rory, uh, you've gone a very unpopular
3: um, uh, uh, stance, uh, especially at this time where um,
2: perhaps the majority of uh, um, liberalized uh, countries are starting. To approach uh, concepts of free trade,
4: local development, local board, those type of things, as being the one thing, uh, as being an approach that is going to save us from all the demons that uh,
2: uh, economic freedoms and liberalisation of uh, capitalism has uh, has got us into. Um, So, considering the fact that it was so unpopular, um, I think it created a, a great counterbalance to uh, what we are all um, struggling with right now. And um, um, that's basically it.
0: All right, I'd just like to thank everyone for coming out today. both our speakers did a great job, and thank you to our judges. And I just have two other announcements about other sessions. The dialogue on democracy will also be um, tomorrow from 5 to 4.30 on campus in um, Turkot Hall 241. As well, there was another announcement about... At 7? Yeah. Alright, that's it. Thank you everyone for coming out today.